My name is Walter Hartwell White. I live at 308 Negra Arroyo Lane, Albuquerque, New Mexico, 87104. To all law enforcement entities, this is not an admission of guilt. I am speaking to my family now. Skyler, you are the love of my life. I hope you know that. Walter Jr., you're my big man. There are, there are going to be some things, things that you'll come to learn about me in the next few days. I just want you to know that no, no matter how it may look, I only had you in my heart. Zachary Bartels is a debut suspense novelist. Um, he caught my eye because his proposal had a Stephen James endorsement already attached to it. Here in our AT&T studio, Zachary Bartels is with us, the author of Playing Saints. The Saints come marching in, the power of faith and the reality of evil. And uh, we've got Zachary Bartels with us today. There are a lot of really good Christian novels out there. They're just not published by Christian companies or advertised as Christian novels. After years of declining sales, Family Christian Stores announced on Friday that it will be permanently closing all 240 of its stores by the end of the And the 2015 Carol Award for a debut novel is presented to Kate Breslin for such a time as this. Writing Christian fiction, exclusively Christian-type fiction, is not where you want to be right now. Okay? This is Clinch a podcast of fiction and not fiction. As an author of suspense and action novels, I know very well that a good bad guy doesn't really know he's a bad guy. Whether the antagonist or the protagonist, if an evil person realizes he or she is evil and just digs the evil and does it anyway, that only works like one out of ten times, if that. I mean, in my book, Playing Saint, the villain is possessed by innumerable demons, which he seeks out on purpose because he likes it, but even he doesn't see himself as the villain. None of us does. A great example of this phenomenon is Breaking Bad, which is the greatest television show of all time, and I'm including all the shows that haven't yet been made. Walter White, the dorky chemistry teacher turned drug kingpin and murderer, is just doing it for his family, he tells himself. When even his wife eventually calls him out as a monster, he brushes it off because she just doesn't understand that he's the one trying to accomplish something noble in this scenario. He has very good reasons that only he truly appreciates. Not unlike Michael Keaton's Vulture character in the recent 14th reboot of Spider-Man, but because Walter White is our protagonist, most of us continued to root for him even while he descended lower and lower into the darkness. See also Patrick Bateman, Richard III, and Claire Underwood. In Falling Down, a classic of the 90s, on-the-nose, pseudo-deep, issues-movie genre, Michael Douglas's Bill Foster, also known as D-Fence, leaves a trail of destruction through greater Los Angeles, which involves knives, machine guns, and eventually rocket launchers, but only at the very end does it dawn on him that he might be the villain in this story, asking in utter confusion, I'm the bad guy? How'd that happen? 
His circumstances had framed his worldview, and he had simply responded in the best way he knew how. The thing is, though, once you realize you're the bad guy, the story is almost over. Either you repent and redeem yourself in the final act, or you go down in a spectacular crash-slash-burn. But sometimes you have to ask yourself, what if the reason that X happened was not all the stuff I tell myself, but simply that I am the jerk in this scenario? Yeah, it's laudable to put the past behind you and move forward, and I've indicated my intentions to you to do that with my writing, and I've been carrying them out. But sometimes you have to first ask the tough questions about the role you played in the past, or the future might wind up being a rerun of that same story. And so this is the final installment, the conclusion of the whining over spilled milk first act of Clinch's Not Fiction section. I call this segment... Possible contributing factors to Zach's literary burn notice. I know, it doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, but let me take a moment to look at six possible reasons for my semi-flame-out in 2016. Number one, timing. They say the three rules of real estate are location, location, and location, but I call nonsense on that. Because sometimes the spatial is absolutely perfect, but if the temporal is off, you still take a bath. My wife and I bought our first home in 2005, near the peak of the bubble market, right before the pop. It's still not quite worth what we paid for it. Sometimes the market does things on its own, and whatever you do just can't counterbalance the massive tipping or bursting or crashing. In the case of my book deal, this first worked in my favor. The fact that a publisher was looking to and willing to launch a couple new suspense authors for the first time in a while was noteworthy. Times were iffy at best for Christian fiction, and it meant that I wasn't one of, like, 20 new fiction authors in that catalog. It meant I got a decent publicity budget and some great opportunities to promote the book. But then, just after my second novel joined my first on bookstore shelves, Family Christian Stores, the largest chain specializing in this kind of book, filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. It was a weird bundle of emotions for me. Because I worked at the FCS corporate office for years, and they put me through seminary, not just provided my employment, but literally paid my tuition on top of my wages. Yeah, I think the Testaments are silly, and if you read Playing Saint, you know how I feel about Joel Osteen and his ilk, but I love this company, and I have many, many friends who were still working there at the time. Some had just recently reached out to congratulate me as they saw my books appearing in stores throughout the chain, But when the bankruptcy court sussed it all out, FCS wound up not having to pay for the collective tons of Christian books, music, and Jesus junk that was currently on their shelves, which was cause for concern. Most creditors begrudgingly went along with it in order to preserve this vital sales channel, but authors and publishers were very unhappy. And I was over here worrying about whether individual sales would count toward my advance when I should have seen the writing on the walls that this moment provided, which I would have to read in that moment because the walls would come tumbling down a year and a half later when the entire chain, all 240-some stores, closed. People in the industry panicked a bit. No matter how you spin it, this was bad news for the Christian booksellers market, both in terms of confirming their worst fears about present buying habits and in terms of greatly limiting the channels through which they could sell their products going forward. 
On top of that, between the FCS bankruptcy and their total shutdown, the world's largest distributor of Christian products also folded. There are different levels of pessimism out there at the moment, but no one really believes that these are super hopeful years for Christian fiction. So maybe that's the main factor. I had found myself, contract-wise, at the proverbial fork in the road at possibly the worst time in decades. That would be some degree of cold comfort for me. It was just bad luck, bad timing. It's not me, it's them. And hey, at least I hadn't lost my primary source of income, like all of my friends who had still been working for family Christian stores. But I actually know for a fact that there are things I could have done and things I could have not done to increase my chances. Leading me to... Number two, lack of commitment. People think about the life of the writer as this idyllic thing. Go off and write your books and then wait for the royalty checks to come floating in. But in reality, having a new book out is, in many ways, a full-time job. Yes, I got a nice marketing and publicity budget with my first book especially, but the publicity side of things meant that I worked with a firm who got me out there as much as possible. So I was doing at least one radio interview a day, sometimes two or three, providing articles and guest posts so that the bio would point people to my book and was also expected to keep up the right kind of presence on Facebook and Twitter, update my blog regularly, as well as showing my readers that I too was a quote, sold out reader by my activity on Goodreads. I needed to answer people's questions and comments and start conversations in order to keep me, and by extension my books, in front of them as much as possible. Ultimately, I didn't have the time and energy to keep this up, not without shortchanging my family or my congregation. In fact, I was starting to do both there for a while. I'm not grousing about all the stuff that goes along with writing. Why can't it just be about the story? No, I'm not an introvert. I, I like this kind of thing, actually. I just burned out on it for a while. Unfortunately, that was some bad timing as well, as I stepped away from all of this just when I should have been proving myself as worthy of another contract. Number three, being a jerk. The most common theme that came up in the sort of post-mortem with my erstwhile agent after her conversation with my erstwhile editor, I love the word erstwhile, was that I could be kind of a tool. She didn't put it that way, of course. Rather, she had apparently used the word caustic, which I think is worse, mostly in reference to my online presence. As it turns out, the publisher was occasionally checking in on my Facebook and Twitter and found that I did not have the right tone. For example, I posted articles about false teachers, compromise in the church, and religious trends that I saw as sort of canaries in the coal mine of evangelicalism. I felt these were relevant to my writing as such themes pop up in my books. In retrospect, it was awfully stupid to post about a couple of mega bestsellers. You know the ones. Boy gets free trip to heaven and woman receives imaginary messages from Jesus because those were the two biggest sellers from the self-same publisher. In fact, I once sat in a makeshift TV set in Nashville being interviewed by my editor before a huge audience flanked by enormous backlit graphics of these two book covers. Maybe I was trying to do penance for that. Whatever the case, yeah, it was really dumb. There's also the fact that I would occasionally have an argument on my Facebook author page. This happened three times, and always with the same woman who I already knew through a local writing group, and who I now see with 2020 hindsight, I should have just blocked from my page immediately. Instead, every time she'd jump on something I posted with her uninformed, condescending critiques, I gave in to the urge to fully engage her. 
A good internet argument, while pointless, is a guilty pleasure of mine. It's clear to me now that seeing this on an author's page does anything but encourage reader interaction and really does sabotage what we were trying to build. And I had my moments of being a bit brusque and jerky in email exchanges with the publisher. But flipping through my archived messages, 98% of everything is smiley emojis, mutual backslapping, not backstabbing, and friendliness to a fault. Number five, being a man. Seriously, Christian publishing is straight up run by middle-aged women. Sure, there are exceptions. I know a number of men in the industry, and some of them are in positions of great power, but I did not deal with any of them in the course of editorial, design, marketing, none of it. And I suppose that makes sense, as the vast majority of readers and authors of Christian fiction are women. But they told me they were looking to snag more male readers and a good way to do that was to establish some new male authors. And yet, as the process unfolded, it sort of reminded me of the old stereotype of the church that wanted to appeal to young people and update its image and breathe new life into its ministry without changing anything at all. I was given guidelines for how to engage readers on social media, which included such suggestions as, ask what are you making for dinner tonight? Yeah, that'll get men talking. Now, granted, I have many female readers, too, probably more than half, and I'm not suggesting any kind of reverse sexism was at play here, not in the least, just that the industry was kind of pre-set up by and for women. And yes, cosmically, it does help to balance things out in the right direction just a little bit. Whenever a man struggles to fit into an industry tailored for the opposite sex, and that man wouldn't even have the right to complain, but it would still suck to be that man. And I'm not even complaining here. It is what it is, and I long knew what it was, and I should have adjusted. Number six, exclusively Christian content. Last week, I riffed on the shift from exclusively Christian books to more inspirational books with vaguely Christian themes, and I'd love to claim that it was my unwillingness to sell out that put me on the outs. That would make me a righteous martyr, which is exactly the kind of sadly ironic pride against which I contend, but I'm afraid it wasn't the case. If this played a role at all, it had to do with sales, not principle. People aren't buying nearly as much Christian Christian fiction as they used to, and my sales were certainly in keeping with that, as much as I wanted them to be the exception. However, they were on par with those of another novelist, whom my publisher launched at about the same time, and who got another three-book contract while I got the boot. Conclusion So the question is, what does the pie graph look like with these factors? My tendency, of course, is to give the biggest chunk to things outside of my control because, like everyone, I'm the protagonist of my own story in my own mind. But so is Walter White and Alex the Droog and Raskolnikov. Am I lying to myself like so many corrupt protagonists? I'm the guy who wouldn't tone down the Christian themes. I'm the guy who wouldn't share recipes on Pinterest. I'm the guy who got popped in another bubble of bad timing. Or maybe I'm just a jerk who complained too much and argued with readers on my Facebook page. Aside, it's telling that none of these options involve a lack of talent on my part or the idea that my writing may just not be that good. Honestly, that is the one thing I haven't heard, but even that may be me circling my own wagons, so to speak. Now, if you've ever been here too, 
you know that just like you'll follow a good protagonist anywhere and root for him, even against your better judgment, you'll do the same for yourself to some degree. You don't have to be a narcissist to justify your actions by reflex. It's part of original sin, and we all struggle against it. And, you know, it's hard work, humbling work, to admit to yourself that you could have done much better, that you dropped the ball. If I had it to do over again, I'd write the same exact books, but I'd change almost everything else. Not that it was all rooted in my pride or naivete, just that the knowledge I have now would serve 2013, 14, and 15, Zach, very, very well. I ultimately decided that the reality of what happened and why is probably somewhere between the self-protective narrative that I've concocted, on one hand, and the sort of spectacular, self-sabotaging, Troy Duffy-esque, megalomaniacal meltdown on the other. But that's all behind me. Lessons learned, great, but if you admit you're the villain the story's almost over. And I'm not ready for the story to be almost over. And that's okay, because I'm not the villain. I'm just a normal guy who's sometimes kind of an idiot. And so I look ahead. And while it's one thing to say you're moving forward, the question remains, how? And that will be the topic of Act 2. For now, let's get back to Trenton Marsh and the little town of Clinch Rock. Previously, Unclinch. Let me see if I understand you here, Trent said. You're planning to dress up in a costume and fight crime as a hero in Clinch Rock. That's insane, Judith. The chief ambled over and took off his hat. Soup kitchen was broken into during the night. Looks like the same people we've been dealing with. Another text bleeped through from Judith. Still not convinced? I also need to decide on a weapon. I'm thinking something from the Bible to go with the theme. Maybe a slingshot like the one David used on Goliath. I've been working on my accuracy, and I'm really good. Hey, Trenton, look who's here, Jason said, with something important to talk about, right when your date with Zoe is about to start. Huge coincidence, am I right? Adam's eyes were locked onto the screen. He was looking at a frame of a man dressed all in black, reaching up with his left hand in the process of yanking the cable out of the security camera. The man's shirt rode up a bit on his belly, revealing the handle of a semi-automatic pistol. As much as he wanted the madness of the past few months to be over, he knew he could not lay down his badge until he caught whoever was doing this, no matter how long it took. Clinch, a novel, chapter six. Quote, life should be an adventure. Never settle for less. If you've gone all in, no holds barred, cray cray for Jesus, there will never be a dull moment. From Insane Faith, Superhero Edition, by Stephen Branding, copyright 2014 Charterhouse. Page 122. The Cassell House was well known to everyone in Clinch Rock, although most mistakenly called it the Castle House, which made sense considering the two large turrets flanking the front of the edifice, as well as its sheer imposing size. For most of Trenton's life, all of the windows had been boarded up with plywood, and the grass had been mowed at most three times each summer. But as he approached the front door, the manicured lawn and beautifully restored windows, some of them leaded with colored glass, made it hard to even remember the place as it had looked abandoned. The angry ferret was back in his stomach and seemed to have been downing shots of espresso during the short walk from the parsonage. Trenton took a deep breath and held it for a moment, standing at the front door. When he let it out, he envisioned his anxiety leaving with it, disappearing into the evening air. But he was still a wreck as he thumped the old knocker against the door. 
A moment later, Zoe was standing before him, wearing a little black dress and a necklace of pearls. He opened his mouth to tell her how nice she looked, but only a small, halted squeak emerged, perhaps from the ferret down below. She laughed, her wide smile seeming to contain more teeth than the average mouth, although that made no sense, all perfectly white and straight. Come on in, she said, beckoning warmly. My dad's in the parlor. He can't wait to meet you. Trenton followed her through an ornate foyer and into a large open room. There, Brian Green stood, waiting to greet him. He was a thin man with thick hair and a Van Dyke beard. He wore a vest over his shirt and tie, but no jacket. For some reason, Trenton had a hard time picturing him not wearing a vest. He took a step forward and grasped Trenton's hand, giving it two firm pumps. You must be the famous Mr. Marsh, he said. I've heard much about you. It's great to meet you, sir. Call me Brian. Okay, um, yeah, Brian... Trenton looked around the parlor as an awkward silence threatened to overtake the conversation before it even got started. There were two pieces of uncomfortable-looking antique furniture a few steps from them, but otherwise the room was bare, nothing on the walls which looked as though they had recently been repainted. It's a work in progress, Brian said, but we can see it exactly as it will be. The paint color, the art. She'll be restored just as she would have been in her heyday during the 1890s. He walked over to a patch of new plaster and ran his hand over it. You wouldn't believe the primitive wiring we replaced. It's a wonder the place never burned down. A ding sounded from the kitchen, and Brian excused himself to check on dinner. He likes you, Zoe said. He can read people quickly, and I can read him. Trenton smiled, a bit goofily. Is your mother here too? Zoe's face fell a bit, though she tried to hide it. My mother passed away when I was 11 years old. Mine too, Trenton said, when I was 10. She reached over and took his hand. After a moment, Trenton cleared his throat. What's all this, he asked, pointing to a folding table in the corner, covered in black and white photographs. She led him over by the hand. These are part of our collection. Photos from Clinch Rock's lumbering roots. What do you think? Trenton examined a picture of two dozen lumberjacks sitting on an enormous felled pine. They were broad-shouldered tall men, but none of them as tall as the cross-section of the tree itself. Whoa. Yeah, this whole area was covered in trees that size, but by the early 20th century it was all logged out. There are only a couple small preserves in the state where you can still find old-growth pine forest. But who could blame them? Pine was like gold back then. I guess it paid for all this, right? Trenton said. Think we're all ready here, came Brian's voice from another room. Let's have a seat. When dinner had been doled out, lobster tails, quinoa, and Brussels sprouts, and olive oil, and sea salt, Brian turned to his guest and asked, have you heard how much I paid for this house? Um, no, I mean, it's not... Brian laughed. Forgive me, I'm having fun. I don't usually discuss money, but in this case, it's just too good to keep to myself. He drew up his already perfect posture in his chair. For the deed to this house, I paid... One dollar. Seriously? It's a wonderful story. This magnificent place had been empty, falling apart for years. The property had reverted to the city, who couldn't seem to give it away no matter how much they dropped the price. No one could afford to repair and maintain it. Eventually, they offered it to anyone who would pay off the back taxes, which stood at about $20,000. Still, no takers. He took a drink of his wine. Then, last year, they decided that this historic house had become an eyesore and had to either be restored or torn down. To that end, they forgave the back taxes and offered the place for a dollar to anyone who could show themselves capable of the restoration. Zoe beamed as she listened to her father. 
And, of course, the town council was bowled over by our plans for the museum and all the rest. Trenton stopped fighting with the lobster shell long enough to say, Museum? Brian dabbed politely at his mouth with the cloth napkin. Trenton, we aren't restoring this place for ourselves. This is the first step in a much larger revitalization plan for Clinch Rock as a whole. It's a long time overdue. My mother grew up here, you know. Not this house, of course, but one just down the road. She taught me to care about where I come from. To revere the past. That's something this town, most towns really, has lost. We're going to give it back to them. He locked eyes across the table with Zoe, and they both smiled. Trenton noticed that she too was drinking wine. Zoe tells me that you live in the church parsonage. I bet you didn't know that your home used to be the servants' quarters for this house. I did not know that, Trenton said, suddenly feeling foolish and small, the servant to the man with the grand vision. It's true. All the houses in the two blocks between us were only erected about 50 years ago. Before that, it was one big estate, and Mr. Cassell, a somewhat eccentric lumber baron, valued his privacy so much that he had separate servants' quarters built on the opposite edge of his property, inconvenient as it was for the help. That's why the house where you live is so much older than all the homes around it. Interesting, Trenton said. Brian's face went sour. I hate that word. Interesting. Find a better one. Uh, okay. I mean, I'll... Tell me, Trenton. Do you even know why this town is here? I, um, I guess not. Don't feel bad, Brian offered, smiling again. Most people don't. Clinch Rock was a mill town, founded in the 1890s. You know where the old mill is? Or what's left of it? Behind the Sunoco, right? That's right. They cut board there from the booming lumber industry. There were also two major lumber camps right nearby, both of them owned and operated by Mr. Cassell, as was the mill. But Benjamin Cassell was unlike other lumber barons. More like King Solomon. He came to the edge of riches and luxury and determined them to be worthless. Near the end of his life, he found Jesus, I suppose, and donated a large sum of money to expand the town church, where your father is parson, correct? Yeah. Cassell was very close with Jeremiah Walcott, the founding minister, and having let his servants go, he donated the house where you now live to the church. Well, we appreciate that, Trenton laughed. That's nice of him. Brian gazed at him, stone-faced for a moment. The story gets a lot less nice from there. It turns out that Cassell planned to do away with almost all of his worldly goods before he left this mortal coil. Specifically, he decided to give an enormous hoard of cash he'd been piling up, a majority of his entire fortune, to the church to fund mission and humanitarian work among the local American Indians and the families of men who had worked in his camps. But when his bookkeeper, a mean old lumberjack whose knees and back could no longer take the toil, was asked to draw up the papers, well, he simply couldn't bear the thought of all that money just evaporating like that. He set down his silverware and leaned forward with exhilaration. One night, he cornered the lumber baron right here in this house, and demanded that the money be given to him instead. Cassell refused. The confrontation came to blows, and Cassell was killed in the bedlam. So the bookkeeper, his name was Wellick, walked across the grounds to your current home, dragged Reverend Walcott out of bed in the middle of the night, brought him back here, and demanded he give Cassell a Christian burial. You may have noticed the grave marker on the way in. Trenton nodded. Every kid in town knew about the headstone, as it was the basis for many a ghost story involving the allegedly haunted castle house. 
And then Wellick did something that no one saw coming. He settled in here, made this his home as if he had bought it fair and square. Can you imagine that? Taking over the house of the man you killed in cold blood? Zoe shook her head, projecting awe more than disapproval. That is crazy, Trenton said. Oh, that's not the end. Not even close. You see, it wasn't too long before Cassell's business partners in the Saginaw Valley caught wind of what had happened, and they sent hired thugs, an infamous group who called themselves the Crown Fire Boys, to put things right and locate the missing hoard of cash. These men were so hardened, even the lumberjacks feared them. Brian slammed his palm down against the dining room table, causing Trenton to jump from his seat. The men burst into the house, right through the same front door you entered tonight, and demanded the money. They searched every room but could not locate it, and so they began to torture Wellick. They tied him to a chair and beat him. Not far from where you are sitting, you can still see the evidence of it. Trenton looked down, spotting a brownish stain in the wood floor about four feet from where he sat. It may have been the very chair you're sitting in. Fascinating, isn't it? His eyes pulled down in affected sadness, but the corners of his mouth pulled up just a bit. Trenton glanced at Zoe, who was utterly transfixed by her father's retelling of these events. They did their worst, Brian continued, but the old lumberjack wouldn't give it up, no matter what they tried. Do you see that bump in the wall behind you? Trenton looked. Yeah. While they were cutting off Wellick's fingers, they thought they saw him glance at that wall, and so they opened it to have a look. It was never properly repaired. He leaned against the arm of his chair, studying the spot. We're not going to fix that. It's part of the story of the house. Trent's eyes skipped from the stained floor to the bulging wall, and he suddenly thought of the recent break-ins, of floors and walls ripped open, the intruders looking for something. Who have you told this story to? he asked. Brian smiled. Whoever will listen. The week before last, I made a presentation to the entire town council. We're not looking for any funding from the city, but buy-in is important, and people respond to stories, especially this type of story. For millennia, few things have inspired the same level of interest as hidden treasure. People will kill for it, die for it. So no one ever found the money? No. And Wellick died rather than give it up. Or perhaps he never had it to begin with. It's possible that Cassell never disclosed its location and it died with him. Or who knows, maybe the Reverend got a hold of the cash even before Wellick made his move and it's hidden somewhere in your house. Since the Reverend Wolcott died suddenly not long after all this, we'll probably never know. Trenton laughed, trying to lighten the mood. Don't tell my dad, he'll start tearing the place apart. From what he tells me, the church could definitely still use a hoard of cash. Brian nodded, knowingly. Money motivates people, perhaps more than anything else. There's even an account of the Reverend Walcott coming here while the Crown Fire Boys tortured Wellick, trying to convince the man to give up the cash. Do you think your father would do that? What? Trenton looked from Brian to Zoe. Of course not. Brian shrugged. I'm sure he's a good man, but it takes money to run a lumber camp or a church or to turn a town like Clinch Rock around and make it what it once was, what it could have been. And you said yourself, the church is in need of some extra funds. Zoe poked at him. Stop being weird, Daddy. Brian laughed. I'm sorry, Trenton. You have to forgive my zeal. Sometimes I get so passionate about the history of a place, I forget myself in the present. Anyway, Zoe said, Trenton's father is not just a pastor, he's the chief of police, too. 
he'd have arrested the Crown Fire boys on the spot. Of course, Brian said. Zoe, would you mind clearing this and bringing in the dessert? I'd be happy to, she said. When Zoe had disappeared into the kitchen, their plates all stacked precariously, Brian looked long and hard at his guest before saying, I'm not stupid, Trenton. I... what? Did I say something? He shifted uncomfortably in his seat, which seemed to be getting harder by the minute. He felt a bit as if he were the one tied to the chair, torture impending. I know you're looking for an excuse to spend some time with my daughter, and I can respect that. You seem like an upstanding young man, the son of a minister and a peace officer, a community leader. I've got nothing to worry about with you, do I? No, sir. Good. Then here's your excuse. You help us with the museum and the rebranding of the town. The two of you do some busy work and some legwork together, and who knows, maybe something special will develop. Trenton nodded. Thank you, sir. He realized all at once the ferret in his belly was now fast asleep. Or maybe he'd vanished. Somehow in the midst of all the theft, torture, and avarice, he'd gotten the approval of Zoe's father, which he now saw was more important to her than he could have possibly anticipated. And not only that, but Brian had offered to create ongoing opportunities for the two of them to spend time together. With school starting just around the corner, this should have been the best news he could possibly receive. Just then, Zoe reappeared, carrying three plates of peach cobbler, filling the room with the scent of baked sugar and butter. It was almost enough to distract him from the bloodstains on the floor and the gnawing feeling that his life was already over full without the added responsibility of rebooting an entire town. It was almost 11.30 by the time Trenton got home. After dinner, they'd returned to the parlor for coffee and more conversation, during which he had really taken to Brian Green. The man's intensity about the past was off-putting at first, but once Trenton got used to that, he found him charming and friendly. The three of them had talked about the challenges of such a large undertaking, as well as their ongoing project of restoring the old lumber camp, and their future plans to purchase and restore the dilapidated sawmill. The whole thing left Trenton feeling very up and full of hope, as if anyone could accomplish anything if they just believed they could. Maybe that's what Sean Taylor meant by never give up unless you're giving up, giving up. No, that still made no sense. The light was still on in the living room, so he decided to drop in and say hi to his dad. They'd spent maybe an hour together in the past two weeks, between camp and his dad's schedule, and the fact that they now came and went through separate doors had only meant less face time for the Marsh men. Even before slipping his key into the lock, Trenton knew something was wrong. Dad? He called, navigating his way past several stacks of boxes and into the living room. You hear, Dad? No answer. Then a thump, and another. It was coming from upstairs. Clinch, a podcast of fiction and not fiction, is a Cardiff Giant production. Copyright 2017, Zachary Bartles. Produced in partnership with KD Enterprises. Theme music composed and performed by Bill Colon. Excerpted text from Clinch, a novel, copyright 2017, Gut Check Press. Special thanks to WAC Productions, www.wacfilm.com. For more information about me and my books, visit ZacharyBartles.com. If you'd like to drop me a note, you can reach me via email at Zach at ZacharyBartles.com. That's Zach with an H, the way God intended it. Or through the U.S. mail at P.O. Box 10003, Lansing, Michigan, 48901. Naturally, I'm also on Facebook and Twitter 
at Author Z Bartles. And if you're a little twisted, you may want to check out the Gut Check Podcast, www.gutcheckpress.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening. Gut